Hi, everyone. I'm Brene Brown, and this is the Dare to Lead podcast. In today's episode, I am talking with one of my favorite thinkers and writers, Dr. Sarah Lewis. This is part two of a conversation. We talked for the first time on November 30th, but I was so obsessed with her book. I I remain obsessed with her book, The Rise, Creativity, the Gift of Failure, and the Search for Mastery, that one conversation was not enough. In our first conversation, we really dig into the difference between mastery and success. And in this conversation, we talk about the impact of protecting creative time. And we also talk about, I'm laughing because we talk about the power of surrender, which just on face value is something that does not sound good to me. But what I realized through this conversation is that it's actually an essential part of my creative process. I just have never thought about it like that before. But per usual, Sarah walks us into the concept, tells us some great stories about what surrender is and isn't. And now I get it. As Sarah says, it's not about giving up. It's about giving over. We also talk about aesthetic force and the role of imagery in creating change. So glad you're here. This is just, to me, an incredible conversation with a very amazing woman. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Okay, let me tell you about Dr. Sarah Elizabeth Lewis. She is an associate professor at Harvard University in the Department of History of Art and Architecture and in the Department of African and African-American Studies. She is the founder of the Vision and Justice Project. Dr. Lewis has published essays on race, contemporary art, and culture with forthcoming publications, including a book on race, whiteness, and photography, which is going to be out by Harvard University Press in 2022, a book on vision and justice by Random House, and an anthology on the work of Carrie Mae Weems from MIT Press, in 2021. She also has an article focusing on the groundwork of contemporary arts in the context of Stand Your Ground Laws, which is available in the Winter 2020 Art Journal. In 2019, she became the inaugural recipient of the Freedom Scholar Award presented by the Association for the Study of African American Life and History to honor Lewis for her body of work and its direct positive impact on the life of African Americans. She is... Just an incredible, again, thinker and writer and 
someone that gives us language for really some of the quiet, mysterious experiences that give purpose and meaning to life. Grateful to have her on and grateful to have you here. All right, I'm back with the amazing Dr. Sarah Elizabeth Lewis. And this is part two, because I think, Sarah, the best way to explain it is we got into part one, and it was just too much to talk about. Mm -hmm. I'm thrilled to be with you again. This is exciting. Thank you. It's an honor. I have received so many comments on social media, but also calls from friends and texts from friends that there was this, you know, always the qualitative researcher, this thematic analysis on the comments and the text is, I listened to it. It took me a week to unpack it in my head. And now I can't get it out of my head. Like they're basically, they said you blew their minds. It's amazing to hear that. I was stunned to hear that. I have my own friends who know me so well, listened to it and found out things about me they didn't even know. So it's a testament to your skills as an interviewer too. It's exciting. It's, let's see what we get into today. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So for those of y'all who have not listened to the first episode, so this is part two in the first episode, and we're really using Sarah's book, The Rise, Creativity, The Gift of Failure, and The Search for Mastery as the arc. This is where my questions are coming from. So it's one of my, I I think one of my all time favorite books on the secrets and mystery around creativity. It's one of those books that you read and you think that the secret inner life you have as a maker or a creative is just yours. And then you not only does Sarah like give it language and let you know you're not alone, she brings beautiful history and current research into it. So it's just an incredible book. Thank you, Renee. Again, I mean, writing alongside your work was what sustained me through the process. So it's, to me, it's still surreal that we're sitting here talking about it together. So thank you. Yeah. In life, interesting that way. I love it. Beautiful that way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in the first episode, we talked about why the word failure doesn't quite capture the often transformative experience of falling and beginning again. We talked about the concept of blankness. Mm -hmm. We talked about the difference between success and mastery, which is just so many people talking to me about their learning there. Mm. We talked about the power of setting audacious goals that are right outside our grasp. I wrote it down to hang it in my study. Did you see it? I wrote on a little notepad. And then I just took a picture of the notepad and put it up on Instagram. And people were like, oh, yes, the goal that's right outside their reach. That's right. The gift of the near win. Yes. The the near win. I want to dig into some other concepts and learning from your book that have been really important to me. And I want to start with my least favorite. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You're going to have to walk me through this. Let's see. The concept of surrender. Mm. (laughs) So you write, it's page 87, there is no way to measure surrender's impact. We know its efficacy when we see it. After the deep pain of coming close, of failures of all kinds, we break, we break open enough to contain, invite, and triumph over more. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the concept of surrender. What you've read is the final sentence or two sentences of the chapter on surrender, right? So I guess we should take people back to the beginning. This was 
maybe my least favorite idea to, in that it was the most difficult to grasp. And it came to me, wasn't something I birthed. That is to say, after researching for so long, I realized that I had to talk about it because it was the missing ingredient, the missing piece. By surrender, I'm not talking about, just to top line this, quitting. This isn't about giving up. What I learned is that, and this is a story really about this Arctic explorer, but really explorations of all kinds, is that there does come a point when you are striving for that audacious goal, when you have to not give up, but give over and surrender to something greater, assisting you and perhaps being the goal that you really did have in mind, but didn't dare state. Mm. Surrender was the best term I could come up with for it. The framework of the story, every chapter really is a, a story that gets to a main idea, came to me because of the power I found in talking to Ben Saunders for years. He's this incredible Arctic explorer, uh, one of the few people in the world who's gone to the North Pole solo and on foot, and now this, the South Pole as well. And I spent two years at least interviewing him, wanting to understand how he was able to embark on these kind of superhuman feats of a uh, 200 pound sledge on his back uh, over ice sheets that are you know, in total the size of the United States, Antarctica, without any companionship support over ice sheets that were breaking apart as he was trying to move in one direction, they would move against his intended direction all sorts of obstacles physically and psychologically that would have seemed to to just damn anyone to kind of an internal frustration and put, make them quit. But Ben Saunders didn't. <laughs> and he, it's not as if he's built differently, physically speaking. It's not as if he's you know, superhuman in that way. He's like you or I, and I wanted to know how he did it. And after getting to know each other for a while, he, he said, you know, I can't think of another word besides surrender to describe where he found, as he put it, the fortitude to endure. At that point, I said, well, what do you mean by surrender? And and he offered me this vivid anecdote. I'll never forget it. He described how he would at night you know, pitch a tent after walking on those breaking ice sheets for up to you know, nine, 10 hours. And he would go to sleep, get the rest he needed for the next day, and he'd wake up, check his GPS, and he could see oftentimes that he had erased his gains from the entire prior day just by, by sleeping. Mm. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of his gains were erased because he was shifting as he was sleeping, so it took him back to where he started? Exactly. exactly. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. Exactly. exactly. So imagine, so many of us have that kind of feeling of, you know, pushing a rock uphill and then resting and realizing it's rolled back down. I mean, this is what he was dealing with in the most extreme possible scenario. And I, once I, I realized through the, the images too, you know, what he was dealing with, I mean, remember, this is also the Arctic, sub 50 degree temperatures, et cetera. I, I heard him say in that moment, he couldn't think of anything other than surrender, meaning he realized in that moment there was no use uh, struggling. There was no use in being frustrated. What good would that do in the middle of the Arctic, you know, to kind of 
shake your fist to the heavens, right? (laughs) You're not in control. You're not in control. And it's the most extreme example of that. And so he realized that he had to focus on what he could control, meaning he had to surrender over the control and the power that the elements did have to it and train his mind to instead engage with what he could embark upon, which was to put one foot in front of the other, to remain positive, to consider all the ways in which he had actually persevered in that prior day. And all of that, that helped me understand the psychological fortitude that it took uh, to arrive as he finally did at the North Pole. The way that I came to understand it myself had to do with studying or talking to Wendy Palmer, this American martial arts expert. She studies Aikido. Aikido is maybe the best way to kind of understand the physics of what Ben Saunders is talking about. I mean, if you've ever seen any film where a martial artist has kind of absconded from some attacker and moves and finds himself in a position of greater power and force and is able to then take them all on, you're seeing Aikido at work. It's it's not one of the martial arts that requires attacking someone. It requires redirecting, incoming, <laughs> things that you don't want to be coming your way and finding a new position from which to to master your, your own sense of power. And Wendy Palmer took me through a couple of different exercises. But what it really is training you to do, your body to do, is to do the opposite of what the primitive response is, which is to tense up in a position of danger, to instead relax and have the ability to be in touch with all of your faculties, with all of your inner resources. And that's really what Ben Saunders was doing out there on, on the ice in those moments. He was he was living out that art of Aikido. He was surrendering so that he could understand what his body did need to do in a given moment. And others besides me, psychologists, you know, physiologists can discuss what is happening to the body under extreme stress, which prevents us from being our optimal selves, right? But surrender allows us to benefit from the wisdom of all of those studies meditation does, other things do too. And I think that it may be the most difficult concept for particularly Americans to embrace in many ways. We want to feel as if we are in control of our path, which might be over breaking sheets of ice, right? We want to feel directed. But there are ways in which surrender is helpful. I think it allows us to regroup, to redirect, and to kind of Marshal or, or husband our, our inner resources. I mean, the final thing I would just add about this, it, and it's it's maybe where I was more reluctant to go in talking about it, but but I think as a nation we're all there. I think grief, frankly, is the most accessible way to understand what surrender is about. You know, hmm. I write about having lost a dear friend in the rise in that chapter on surrender because she helped me to understand what that could mean for my life. This friend and I, you know, we share the same birthday. We look nothing alike. Uh, we went to college together. She's the sort of person who would suck the marrow out of every day. She'd leave you feeling more energized about anything you talked about. And she died when we were in our 20s trying to save her cousin who was drowning in a pool, but she couldn't swim herself. Mm. And she was alone in this house babysitting. And 
she jumped in to save him. And I, I always wonder what she thought in that moment. But of course, there is the physical act of surrender, giving over, honoring his life as much as her own. But when she passed, everything that we had talked about, all the different dreams that I'd only dared tell her were, I realized what I needed to be brave enough to surrender to uh, in order to fully live in order to fully live and, and honor her, honor my life. And that that became quite literal for me. Uh, I would not have embarked on writing The Rise if not for that act of surrender, for example. I mean, there's nothing in my path that told me writing a book about failure as a African-American woman who's in grad school <laughs> studying art history was the right thing to do. But I felt that it was being put on my path and then I had to kind of give over to it in a sense. And I say collectively, I think we're experiencing this because of the way that COVID has just taken so many loved ones from us whose, whose lives and whose sense of purpose in their own life is I think giving us a new way to understand how we can give over to something larger ourselves. Yeah. I think the idea of giving over and not giving up. So mm-hmm. When I start to write a book, it's been the same process. I mean, I'm probably, I guess this is working on my eighth book right now. Nothing good comes until I surrender to the book and to the process because I really try to control it. I, and, I, and I always say this book's going to be different. I'm actually going to control this one. I'm going to predict the structure of it. I'm going to, and, and, and it's so scary to me, Sarah, to surrender to the book because mm-hmm. then I don't know where we're going and I have mm-hmm. lost some control and I become part of the book and part of the process, not standing over it, but I'm in it. And that can sweep me away sometimes. Yeah. How much of surrendering is letting go of counterfeit control? What a brilliant term for what so many people are duped by counterfeit control. I mean, that's that's it. How much of surrender is about giving that up? I think everything. And here we're getting to kind of the magic, I think the beauty of what makes this truly uh, my favorite concept in the book. Um, Hmm. Once you give up that counterfeit control, you're really then finally in the true driver's seat, right? Of the creative yes. process, right? You're finally kind of living out what that co-creation can feel like. And it's exhilarating, it's mysterious, and I, I think it can be daunting because there when you say that when you're writing your book and giving up control that you don't know where you're going, is that because you sense that there is kind of another force sort of working through you, kind of with you, giving you ideas, insights? Etc. Yes. I mean, the only way I thought about this when I was rereading it before our, our conversation today, it's when I at church, when we talk about the mysteries of faith, I go to a place of trusting in the emergence of the data, I go to a place of, it's actually moving from being an agent of control to an agent of change. Mm-hmm. And it's completely mystery based. I can't yeah. describe mm-hmm. it. Your, your work comes mm-hmm. the closest, but I can't. And I love it. I love that place. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I don't like to go. I don't like getting on it like a roller coaster. It's a fun ride, but I in line, I'm just like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? You know, like, you know, what you're, you're saying really reminds me so much of what I was struck by in, in Lewis Hyde's work when he writes about the distinction between work and labor. Right. Right. Work is what you do by the hour, he says, but labor is an endeavor that results in a gift. Mm. One that you can't put a monetary value on, which is why. I think the arts are are effectively in the kind of gift economy. You you pay a price for a ticket at a concert, but you are not actually equating that experience of what it really is meant for your life, right? To remember, yes. right? Spirituals or church that there's no way to quantify that. And so I think part of the reason for that is because of what surrendering allows for in terms of your own creative capacity. Right? You can in the end, embark on a journey that results in something eternal, something that lives on beyond you. We have, we, have, we talked about some, some of the artists that, you know, are, are in the rise that live out that journey, but it's all because of this co-creative act of, of surrender. I mean, when Ben Saunders was out on the Arctic, he would oftentimes use the word, and I caught him using the word in the interview, he would say, you know, when we were out there, and at first I was confused. I thought, Ben, I thought you were alone. You told me you were alone. He said, no, I guess it says, it's a way for him to feel that sense of companionship. But I think it's also hinting at what he did feel within, which was uh, assistance, you know, from uh, all that is effectively helping him there. Yeah, I believe it. It goes from my least favorite concept to the one that I revere and Mm. believe in the most. Mm. Mm. But it's a fight. I still fight it every time. Yeah, I was rereading the chapter two, and I don't reread my work very often. I, maybe the first time I've read the book from start to finish in preparation for talking to you after it was published. But I talked a little bit about Hooke's Law in writing Surrender. I mean, and it's just a, a quick sort of koan, but I love it. It's that the force of an extended spring is equivalent to how far it's stretched, right? And, Wait, and say the, it again. Re- say it again for us. Well, I mentioned that Ben Saunders was living a bit out uh, Hooke's law, which is that the force of an extended spring is equivalent to how far it is stretched. But I then get around, (laughs) you know, I mean, we're living that now too. (laughs) But to convert our own energy and operate at full force, often we must first surrender. And that's what kind of brought me into the idea. What is your personal experience with surrender? Nay, how long do we have? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, like, let me, let me, let me just like, let me call a thing a thing. Mm-hmm. You are a black woman at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The vulnerability inherent in surrender mm-hmm. has risk attached to it. Yes or no? Oh, absolutely. It, yes, yes, yes. You know, it's interesting. I wrote The Rise before coming to Harvard. I, I was a grad student, so I had the kind of protective cover of being able to do whatever you want so long as you get the dissertation yeah. done, <laughs> right? And that was a beautiful thing. It would probably be very hard to write this book now. It's true, although I hope to write another one, of course, soon like this. But yes, it's hard. There's so many expectations on me because of my identity that it is. it can be hard. But I don't But I think, Brene, you know, what I've come to see about surrender is that it's actually more of a risk to not try it, to not Mm. actually do it than it is um, 
to to fall into that that kind of way of living. Um, and again, I mean, I really didn't intend to bring it up when we spoke the first time, but I just felt so comfortable in talking to you about it that I did. That near-death experience taught me everything that I need to know mm. about surrender. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any more powerful example that I could have been given, right? To be in, in objectively a circumstance that should have resulted in my death, but to in that moment have had the experience of what surrender meant despite being in this car crash. I think that, of course, the outcome shows me the benefit, right? <laughs> the miracle is that I, I live. The miracle is that what precisely what I prayed for took place right yeah what was saved and i i mentioned it because i really i wish everyone listening could just have the experience the images the pictures of what was happening in my heart and mind in that moment it was it was just so clear to me that we every cell of our being and every second of our day we have so much more kind of provision and protection and guidance than we are cognizant of in our waking hours when we're trying to go about our to-do list and days. I mean, I just, oh my gosh. So I do live out the idea now and it's, it's taken me definitely some time, but I think what maybe what would be more helpful for me to mention is that I definitely find that I kind of segment the days a little bit around it. Yeah, I have to do my to-do list too. I have to take action in this forward momentum kind of seeking way. But I definitely give myself periods of extended time to write and to ruminate that allows for the kind of deep dive that surrender requires. You know, So for five hours, I can feel as if I'm in kind of another dimension, another time writing, doing what I need to do, and then can pop up in the afternoon and go out and do my errands and seem as if I'm just living in the world the way everyone else is. And if you study the lives of so many different artists, as I know you have too, I mean, you see that that's a kind of routine that people embark on that they don't always talk about. You know, you have to find that embryonic safe space in which you can surrender or else your life would just simply won't have the same kind of juice, meaning, force, clarity, expansiveness that it could. Uh, and that's what it's all about. Your use of embryonic was something that people really brought to my attention, the need, mm-hmm. the fragility, the oh. need for protection, the need for the cocoon, the need mm-hmm. to create the space for mystery and surrender. I mean, mm-hmm. that is, yeah, it was very impactful for me. Our conversation was a springboard for me making huge changes, I think, in the way I work and structure my days. Yeah, because listening to you in our first conversation tell that story about that car accident Mm -hmm. and how narrowly you survived that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to have to have that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, If y'all can see us right now, we're on Zoom. She's shaking her head and pointing at me right now. I don't want to have to have that to be in reverence for surrender. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. I'm so, that means so much. Oh my God, that experience I had can have shifted things for you in that way. Beautiful. Yes, because one shouldn't have to go through that. That's the whole point, right? So yeah, finding ways to just claim the life as the gift and the present that it is that's exactly that's exactly it 
Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. All right, let's talk about, while we're on, what I would consider beauty and awe. This was another real soul shifter for me. Let's talk about aesthetic force. Uh-huh. And the role of beauty in change. I want to read something to you. I'm on page 98. I've read this to both my kids. I've talked about it. It's so can you just give me before I read this aesthetic force, simple definition. Aesthetic force, internal shift that happens because of the power of the arts oftentimes that really shifts your critical awareness and perception of the world. So here's what you write. You tell a story, starting on page to bottom of 98. How many movements began when an aesthetic encounter indelibly changed our past perceptions of the world? It was an abolitionist print, not logical argument, which dealt the final blow to the slave trade. The broadside of description of a slave ship, 1789. Mm -hmm. The London print of the British slave ship, Brooks, showed the dehumanizing statistical visualization with graphic precision, how the legally permitted 454 men, women, and children might be accommodated, though the ship, Brooks, carried many more, up to 740. The contrast between reality and the image it conjured in the mind was intolerable enough to abolish the institution and was the evidentiary proof of slavery's inhumanity used in parliament hearings. Wow. So it wasn't the logical arguments against slavery Mm -hmm. and the systemic dehumanization of people. Mm -hmm. It was this image of a slave ship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this an example of aesthetic force? Absolutely. For me, what's exciting to consider is how the arts, not rational argument alone, have dramatically changed the course of civil rights and justice around, around the world. But it's an, an old idea that the arts are a way to get us to see past our blind spots, which is really what motivates kind of me writing about the power of aesthetic force. Aristotle said, you know, reason alone is not enough to make man or or woman, I'd add, good, right? Rational argument alone isn't enough to convince people of the need to change their beliefs. And so the passage you just read is about one such 
work of art, right? Here it's the broadside showing uh, statistically how one could put that many men, women, and children in the hull of the ship as slaves. And the image alone did what an argument could not, right? Showed the inhumanity of slavery and, and is widely credited with being the image that uh, forced the end of the, uh, um, the slave trade. There are many examples. And I think that we oftentimes don't honor them because the shift that can happen is so private and oftentimes only later becomes public. Can I give you an example? Please. So this idea came about when I learned of the life of Charles Black Jr. And mm-hmm. he's at the time, you know, young, just gotten to college, wanted to meet some girls at a dance in Austin, Texas. And so he goes and he finds himself just struck still by the power of this trumpet player um, whom he never heard of before. It turns out that it was Louis Armstrong, the king of the trumpet you know, at the time and still remaining. Um, and he knew in that moment in 1931 that he was listening to genius and mastery and fine lyricism and total control. But in that moment, the recognition of that fact Louis Armstrong, being a black man, told him that segregation just must be wrong. Charles Black Jr. was so struck by the genius of Louis Armstrong that he understood that the world around him had just gotten everything wrong. And to his left was a friend from high school who recognized that genius about Louis Armstrong too, but he just shook his head about him and uttered an epithet used about African-Americans during the day, and he walked away. Charles Black Jr. went on to become one of the lawyers for the Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, that outlawed segregation in the United States. And he credits that particular moment with what occasioned that life-changing shift in him, listening to that piece of music by Louis Armstrong. He wouldn't go on to become a constitutional uh, law professor at Columbia and Yale and he would hold this Armstrong listening night to to honor uh, what this man had done for for him. So when I I ask at the start of that passage, you know, how many movements began when an aesthetic encounter you know, indelibly changed our past perceptions of the world? That's the kind of experience I'm talking about that Charles Black Jr. had, uh, that the description of a slave ship occasioned, uh, and we can go on about different examples. But the public force of those private moments oftentimes takes place uh, so far after the fact that we don't honor the very thing that resulted in that catalytic change, that aesthetic force. You know, I want to ask a complicated question. Okay. A couple of complicated questions. Okay. Do you know if we know whether aesthetic force is more powerful when the imagery is beautiful versus when the imagery is offensive or painful. Mm. Are both images of awe and beauty and wonder aesthetic force that can lead to change as well as images that are horrific and, and dehumanizing? Are those of equal aesthetic force? Yeah, it's an important question. I think what motivated my writing on this idea was that we do tend to focus more on the impact of 
dehumanizing images or propagandistic images uh, than we do images that have force because of what we might call beauty, uh, although it's that's always like a contested term in art history, but, but you know, beauty, we could say. Uh, and so I, I wondered about images that were of a different vein completely. I wondered if we had really missed a whole phenomenon uh, by only focusing primarily on propaganda as it relates to impact in, in mass culture. And, and the answers that we had. Now, Frederick Douglass is the mm. thinker who you know, discovered, you could say, the impact of this idea on American life. He wrote about in this speech entitled Pictures in Progress, uh, the power that photographs and pictures of all kinds were, were having on the hearts and minds and critical imagination of Americans during the Civil War. Now, it's the last thing you would have imagined he would have talked about in a Civil War speech, but he continued to redraft the speech committed to the ideas he was over three times over the course of his life. And in that, it's interesting. I, I bring him up because I don't, I agree with him that it's not necessarily the, the beauty of the image, but the way in which it can ignite what he called a thought picture, what we would call maybe the critical imagination, right? The moral imagination in whomever is looking at it. Uh, and it can be different for everyone and should be different for everyone. Yeah. So I think what matters more is the impact and the elasticity that it creates in, in someone's inner landscape, right? To see the world anew. That might be an image that's sublime, that's beautiful. It, it might not, depending on the person's experience. But there is that for everyone, I think. And, and it's why I think the idea is universally um, applicable and why Charles Black believed in it so and, and Douglas did as well. Yeah, I mean, reading about Frederick Douglass's speech on, oh, there was a line, tell me what the line was, I hope you remember. It was something like trying, asking people to try to catch a glimpse of a, of a flower. I, this, this is the image I had in my mind that was, you know, coursing down a strip on the back of a horse or something like it, it was, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, you just about got it. That's nearly it, exactly. I can't remember what it was, Frederick yeah, yeah. Douglass or you paraphrasing, but it was... It was, it was, it also spoke to me about not just the power of aesthetic force, but the fleeting nature of it often mm-hmm. and the need for focus, mm-hmm. yes. you know? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I think that that's what, that's what made this speech so stunning, surprising to the audience and so potent today. I mean, he was asking the audience to slow down to get still enough to focus on this particular, this precise idea when all they wanted to do is to rush headlong right into thinking about the impact of combat and force to create an American union. And he was asking them effectively to, yeah, be on the back of a rushing horse and pause to look at a flower. Yes. (laughs) What is that going to do for us? Well, actually, it could change your whole view of, of the world around you. I mean, Wallace Stevens has this poem that's entitled The Jar Upon a Hill that's sort of about this idea, too, that something something as small as that can actually change your view of the entire world. And he was making this argument not as a, a whimsical kind of fanciful one. He was living out the power of this idea. He was mm-hmm. becoming the most photographed American man in the 19th century and did become that exactly, not for reasons to do with vanity at all, though he was this sort of prodigious, powerful orator who women were falling for left and right. He was doing this because he understood the power of his self-possessed, 
image in front of the camera could act as a counter narrative to push back against racist stereotypes that have fatal consequences for black lives. So he was thinking about it and as it was as it relates to a human rights project effectively. But yeah. So that's really where he was going uh, with with the speech. I mean, he must have just been a polymath, Frederick Douglass, because it doesn't matter what I'm reading, he comes up in it. You know what I mean? Whether it's aesthetic force, whether it's, you know, oratory skills, it's just, I was, I, I, I was, I was interested in this, whether, you know, whether it's, I know that you can't say beautiful images because you're an art historian of the highest magnitude. I, however, can, because I know, I know it is controversial, but sublime, positive imagery versus negative energy. What, what wields the most aesthetic force? And I ask it for this weird thing. I'm going to, I'm going to try to connect some dots and it may, you may be like, I'm not following or it's a, it's a bad made connection, but I think about Rosalind Hudnell who was like the, the one of the first chief diversity officers and she was at Intel. Okay. And she has a quote that I think about all the time that says, you can't lead diverse teams if you don't live a diverse life. And I think about, I think about how true that is for me. And, and I believe that as someone who studies leadership. Yeah. I think the aesthetic force of leading a diverse life hmm. And, it, and sometimes you don't have control over your geography, but you certainly have control over the books and the films and what you consume, right? The aesthetics mm-hmm. that you consume mm-hmm. is because I led a diverse life. Like, do we see enough black love, mm-hmm. black joy, you know, black mm-hmm. poetry? Do we see enough aesthetic force of not just the dehumanizing images that we're fighting against, which I understand are important too. Mm -hmm. But is there a case to be made that evenly we need to see black excellence, black love, black joy? Like, Mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, I'll I'll tell you what this reminds me of, Sarah. I I posted, like we do all the time on Instagram, a quote from my work about the basic tenets of love are to see and be seen by each other. Mm-hmm. And the stock image we picked was a young black man with his son. Mm-hmm. And people were like, wow, like, like it was extraordinary in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you understand what I'm asking? Like, mm-hmm. is, is positive aesthetic force also a mover? I love this. And I think the answer is yes. What I haven't said, I probably should now, which is that the aesthetic force gets us to examine our unknown unknowns, you know, the things we don't know, yeah. we don't know about the world, <laughs> the world around us, the people around us. And number two, yeah, aesthetic force, the power of the arts, oftentimes are the only avenues that many have to meeting people, interacting with people other than themselves in this increasingly kind of siloed world a lot of people live in. So in, if you're if your kind of media diet or you know set of images you're seeing when we're all able to go back to museums safely, et cetera, don't contain images of people unlike you, I think that your your own worldview is going to be impoverished as a result, right? So mm. I was interested in that. So the images that you're describing, the way in which it impacts diversity and, and excellence and inclusion work, sorry, is also why I'm so privileged and honored to be part of the department at Harvard of African and African-American studies, the, 
the measure of excellence, I think there, you know, set, set as a standard is just extraordinary. But uh, what I contribute and what I'm continuing to write about and, and to think through is certainly the example and the counter narrative force that uh, the arts about and made by people of African descent uh, can contribute to civil rights and, and human rights, right? And this is yes. what Douglas was thinking about and how he sort of created the headwaters is what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's incredible to me. And am I making this up because I'm, I'm hoping for it? Or is it true that you're, you're go- some of your future work will be at this intersection of aesthetic force and social justice and anti-racism? Is that, did I make that up? No, you're not making that up. That's exactly right. So Vision and Justice is the project that came after the rise. And that's a, that's a project that looks at what I'm calling representational justice, which is exactly what you've just described. Oh my yeah. God, I have goosebumps. <laughs> this is you know, the importance of the arts, artists like Carrie Mae Weems, Deborah Willis, Hank Willis Thomas, Latoya Ruby Frazier, Lorna Simpson, all these extraordinary artists who have lived out Douglas's highest hope for what the arts could do for our sense of racial justice, what he would call also American progress. So that's come out as a compendium on Aperture, but the books I'm finishing now just extend that idea. They're kind of closer analysis. So one book, an article just came out related to it, is looking at well, the disproportionate killings of, of black and brown people in the U.S. under stand your ground laws which are in 33 states at this point, and the responses that it has occasioned on the part of artists to interrogate what we actually mean by ground, you know, who mm. has the right to stand yeah. their ground, which is like a colloquial term that actually has disproportionate outcomes, right, in terms of who's privileged and protected. So it's looking at artists like Hende Wiley, um, the Astor Gates and Ava DuVernay and, and many, many others. Uh, Brian Stevenson and his EJI Memorial. Ooh, yes. Right? Yeah, those have been lost to lynching. So that book is coming out, uh, a book on, on whiteness and the kind of collective regime of images that's been used to shore up the idea of what whiteness actually is, even though we know it's a constructed, kind of fabricated term. And then a book on the idea of vision and justice. So I have three books <laughs> coming out all on this topic. So your your wish is my command. Yes, yes. <laughs> God, we're so lucky and I'm so excited. Oh, you're sweet. Thank you. I'm really thrilled yeah. to it. But that chapter, I mean, on aesthetic force is what birthed the clarity of the argument. The um, And it's not as if there hasn't been work done on, on the importance of the arts for civil rights in particular. But to think about it as far back as work happening through abolitionist circles in the Civil War, such as Frederick Douglass, is, is new. So it's exciting. You know why I'm interested in aesthetic force? Because I because I'm an emotions researcher, yeah. and you cannot separate uh, aesthetic force from affect. It's not exactly what we see, yeah. but it's what we believe about what we see and how it makes us feel. That to me contains the aesthetic force. Yes. Again, I mean, Douglas's speech is one to study pictures in progress. And he he was offering you kind of his own he was offering you his own thesis of, about the emotional impact that a work of art can have. And he was describing the kind of critical distance between the mind at the outset before seeing the image and 
where it goes after seeing the image. That critical distance is what he thought Americans needed to be able to process and critique the world around them anew. I don't know that there should be such distance between studies about affect and the arts. I think what you're actually forcing me to see is that so much of what I'm writing about is driven by that frustration or as driven by trying to become a bridge between those two uh, fields in effect. You know, I would love to be able to study in a qualitative sense the impact of, of the arts uh, on various kind of modes of behavior. And that might be coming in the decades ahead. We'll see. Yeah. I want to ask two more questions about aesthetic force, because I think one of them makes me hopeful. One of them scares me. So the hopeful question is from images of George Floyd to images of the insurrection, the violent insurrection at the Capitol, mm-hmm. those images changed people. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in social work, you study that it's not a very long walk. It's a disturbingly, shockingly short walk from dehumanizing language to dehumanizing to violence. You, you, we study that. So like we study systems theory. So when, when I hear rhetoric, I, I very quickly say, oh God, violence is forthcoming. It seemed that some of these images that we've seen even kids being separated in, you know, in these cage-like holding cells. Um, Reality checked amorphous policy and rhetoric in a non-negotiable way. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. It did. It did. I mean, I spent so many, the minutes of that day and subsequent days writing because it, it lives out the thesis of everything I understand that images can do in terms of their efficacy. Yes. I mean, tell me more. Yes. <laughs> and that's why I think we cannot underestimate not just artists the way we, that most of us lay people, not you probably, but that most of us lay people think about artists. We can't us underestimate the power and the courage of photojournalists as well, Right. Oh, absolutely. Right. And there's a double-edged sword to this, though. I mean, it, yes, we, the honor that we must constantly you know, give to our artists, our photojournalists, you, know, you really can't overstate it. On the other hand, and this isn't anything to do with their work, the question about consumption uh, and the ethics of spectatorship and viewing, right, that's another topic altogether. So and it's not to say there's not there's a ton of scholarship on this. There's a ton of writing on this from Susan Sontag, Susie Linfield, Frederick Douglass too, thinking through whether or not there's say a bystander effect with imagery has been kind of one thesis. Are people paralyzed to act, for example, by seeing too many images of of violence or racial terror? I think the example though of George Floyd and the video footage of his public lynching effectively. Uh, so galvanized people because it was incontrovertible, right? The the dehumanization that was on display, the the social, the racial order that was being embodied, enacted, and lived out through that heinous violence. I myself did not deliberately watch it, though. No, I didn't need to see. I I understood exactly yeah. what was taking place in those eight minutes and over forty six seconds, uh, because the the template hasn't changed, 
right, for the last 400 years or so to do it, a way in which we are living through what, you know, Saidiya Hartman would call the afterlife of slavery, right? We're still living out the, I mean, as Brian Stevenson puts it, the, the narrative, right, that the South retained despite losing the Civil War, right, about who's on top. So this, uh, the way that images, I think, come, come in to help in the context of public discourse is by swaying the hearts and minds of those who might be on the fence about whether this is really happening, who, who might not actually understand the kind of whistle dog tactics of racialized rhetoric, you know, as you're describing, right, and offer effectively evidence to the public, put into the court of public opinion to say, is this just? And the George Floyd video certainly did that. I think the video footage of Eric Gardner's killing in broad daylight in Staten Island, being strangled to death as he's stating, I can't breathe for selling, uh, illegally selling cigarettes, you know, in 2014, had the same chilling impact on, on, on people. But I think the difference with George Floyd, though, is that because of the state of the pandemic at the time when the severity of the lockdowns, we were all in our homes largely, yeah. and still are, you know, but kind of gathered around the kind of campfire of the computer screens in our homes and our, and our televisions. And so that became the, the daily diet and offered a, a rare moment in which we could coalesce around a fact, around an event, instead of just moving ahead with the 24-hour news cycle. The Capitol insurrection and George Floyd's unjust killing occupy my thoughts uh, constantly for uh, the truth that they bear out uh, regarding the impact of images, yes, but about the work that we're constantly up to in this country to, to fully honor Black lives. The part, I said there was one part that I thought was helpful, but there's one part that I really scares me, and I, and, and I wonder how you come down on this, is the constant re-traumatizing of specifically black people. I worry about the incessant traumatizing and I worry about desensitizing. And I, mm-hmm. and I just believe, I, I believe so deeply in aesthetic force mm-hmm. that I believe we have to be careful, mm-hmm. like not only in what we produce, but we can't control what's produced, but maybe what we consume. I don't, I, do you worry about it at all? Like in the desensitization and the trauma? I think about it all the time. Absolutely. I have to also, as I teach this material, I think, you know, on this point, I mean, Elizabeth Alexander has a great well, set of essays. One of her most recent is uh, published in, in The New Yorker entitled The Trayvon Generation. Was it the Trayvon Martin Generation. I need to find it quickly. Maybe. Have you read it or seen it? No, no I haven't, but we'll find yeah. it and link to it. Okay. So this is an extraordinary piece that's thinking through the impact of growing up with the steady imagery diet, right, of these instances mm-hmm. of racial terror and the impact that's also having on artistic output. She's looking at a Kendrick a Lamar video, for example. But that is something that she analyzes, many have as well, thinking about just, again, the ethics around the arena of these, that these violent images create for all of us. I, I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I think what the Capitol insurrection has shown us is that some people still do need the images and and will not be swayed by anything other than 
that cold hard fact in front of them and uh and that there are many and that there are many of us who 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 don't need to see any anymore to know the truth of this country and what work needs to happen and i think that both things are equally true (laughs) and so for me what it makes sort of requisite is that we honor the self-care practices that need to be in place for those who have already seen enough imagery, right? So, yes, uh, right. Who who might not want to be on Instagram and constantly scrolling past the the image of, of violence that and and on the other hand, having different arenas for those who, who still need those images. And I, I don't know if it's making sense. I haven't quite thought through what this kind of bifurcated society and what it needs might look like in real time in terms of technology. But I do think that that being shielded from those images is important for one's own mental health and emotional health. And I don't think that sequestering people from them is going to be helpful for those who still need uh, to, to see them. So... Yeah, it's difficult. It's hard for me sometimes as a teacher because I think I subject students to a lot sometimes. And then, but even within a classroom, not just the world, right, Sarah? Within a classroom, some people need to see it and some people never needed to see it to know it exists because it's their lived experience. And so it yeah. is, yeah. It's, and maybe it's about when you're in a position of authority, like a teacher or, some, or a parent, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you, maybe you set that permission out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of guidelines. I have really clear guidelines for myself as a, as I teach my courses at Harvard about this. I don't think though that I I or I wonder if they can really be mapped onto the public sphere, right? So, for example, I mean, no, right. To get back to your question, right? If there are two categories of people, those who really do need the images to see them, and I have students like that, and those who don't need to see anything more to understand how George Floyd could have been killed in that way. I think that some of the tactics I use can apply. One tactic I use is that I, if I need to teach, say, about the history of lynching, and I have to, you, you can't not. To, no. It was only up until, what, 1952, in which we had a year go by in which there was not a case of an African-American person being lynched in the United States. And quite recent history, right? And the work that Equal Justice Initiative has done to unearth uh, the thousands more that are now known is just extraordinary. Um, And these people should know, these are not lynchings that took place because of some sort of vigilante justice that was being enacted for some crime that really was committed. This was the crime of, you know, being black, right? These were just activities people were you know, going about their day and then it was violating a kind of social order and therefore this person was put to death. And those are the vast majority of, of the cases. But when I'm teaching about lynching, for example, I will, if I know, say it's a sea of students who haven't seen any of these images, and these images were used by municipal you know, parts of the government to suppress leadership, right? Black leadership, for example, to kind of give, to terrorize communities. Oh, yeah. Because these documents are important. These are effectively are civic documents and were oftentimes commissioned, right, by mayors, by governors. So... I'll show an image of the body and, and the surrounding crowds. I mean, these are oftentimes public spectacles advertised as events to take your family to. I mean, this was an American pastime. So 
when they they have to see the image and I'll flash it on the screen for maybe three to five seconds, not not more than that. And then I'll crop off the part that it is the most think heinous to see the, the, the body, the hung body. But what's left from that, what's left below are the sea of, of white faces right, who yeah. are staring into the camera with complete impunity, without any fear of, of the fact that they are all accomplices to you know, a murder. Right? <laughs> Carrie James Marshall, the artist, has a stunning piece called Heirlooms and Accessories that's um, located in the collection of the Smart Art Museum. If you link to that or you see that, he has a just masterful discussion of his decision to, in this painting, focus on on the sea of the crowd below and not you know the the black oftentimes man's body above in the photographs because he wanted to talk about the way in which that kind of comfort in being accomplice to that kind of violence is an heirloom is being passed down from generation to generation this is so much of what we all need to understand so that george floyd killing does not come as a shock Right. Right. So there, there are ways I do it in the classroom. I, I just don't know if, you know, MSNBC is going to put up an image of right. a, a body and then crop it for the rest of the time. So that's why I'm pausing on your question, because I think the classroom allows for different tactics to emerge. But it's also why education is so key, why we can't just use the, the work that happens in the court of public opinion to educate. Right. We, we need to focus on what we do. I had a graduate student one year do a project and it was on lynching and it was only the white audience responses. And so we didn't know what these folks were observing and pointing to and smiling about. And so we went through the presentation and kind of this joyful, like, what you know, what is this going to be? And then the end of the presentation was the same photos in context. And talking about aesthetic force, I found it hard to not get physically sick. It was almost like disbelief. And so... It is why education is so important. It is why, I mean, I appreciate you walking me through a lot of this on aesthetic force because I think it's just so important. And I, I appreciate so much how you write about it. I really have to say, I, I also appreciate very much how you and the audience you have here in this great community are um, kind of insistent on going there, <laughs> having these conversations. Oh about race, racism, white supremacy increasingly. I've had a lot of my friends talk to me about how you've opened their eyes about different aspects of this whole collective conversation. So uh, I'm glad that we can have it here together. Uh, there's so much more to say about it. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is. We edited and made a different <laughs> quick fire question because we asked you the first one. So I've got new ones. But before okay. we go there, I want to have a short conversation about... Is it Shadrach, oh, Emmanuel Lee, yeah. your grandpa? Wow. wow. He, he got himself kicked out of school. You want to tell us why? <laughs> he did. Yeah, in New York City, 1926, public school, 11th grade. He asked his teacher a very simple question. He just wanted to know why the world around them wasn't reflected in their history books. He he wanted to know why excellence was just being presented one way. Uh, he wanted to know where African Americans were, Asian Americans were, Latinx folks, you know, Indigenous folks were. And 
his teacher told him that black people in particular had done nothing to merit inclusion in those history textbooks. And he just didn't accept that as an answer. And so he kept asking the question. And he was expelled from high school for his so-called impertinence. He never went back uh, to high school. He never got a college degree or GED, of course, but he became um, an artist, created in those paintings, the images that he expected he should have been able to find in those textbooks. So Shadrach Emanuel Lee is my grandfather. My name, Sarah Elizabeth Lewis, bears initials, S-E-L, that's meant to honor him. And I'd like to believe that in some way I am, I mean, two generations later, teaching at Harvard the very topics he was being expelled for asking about. Is, uh, that makes me... It makes me well up every time I think about it. There's pictures right behind that candle oh. uh, in front. <laughs> so, so he planted these questions in my, in my heart and mind. You know, what is the real, the force of the creative kind of function and, and the arts for justice, large J and capital J. And I think it's my, my life's work to continue to write about it. I just thought, wow. But I love to have him on the podcast to talk about not only his work, but your work and what he, you know, I mean, wow. And a musician, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, he's a jazz musician too. He played backup with Count Basie and Duke Ellington. He played upright bass. He was so cool. You know, he's just that epitome of like the jazz kind of cool idea we have in our mind's eye. And he was so hopeful too about what I might do in the arts. But when he died, I was in college and um, I thought I was going to become an artist myself, painter. And uh, I think the last thing he he said about me, I can't remember our last conversation, but my mom showed him one of my, one of my paintings and he said, oh, I, I think she's got it. I think she's got oh. it. <laughs> this is sweet. <laughs> Thank you for sharing him with us. I love that part of the book. I could just, I bet his heart prints are all over this book, aren't they? Oh my gosh. I'm really I'm like welling up here. Uh, yes. And I think his, his fingerprints are part of why we're having this conversation as well. He, he gave me so many gifts and I hope that I've given some of them to uh, people who read the book and listen to our conversation. No, oh, there's no question. I feel like I got a, a gift directly from you and in some way directly from him. So I'm grateful for that. There's one other just thing I want to add, though. I think that my grandfather gave me a sense of also the gift of what it means to be underestimated. You know, mm. I think in that question he was asking, I, I don't think the teacher would have expected that he would go on to do what he did. It's not to say he was a well-known artist, but there's always this this dream in all of us, right? And we never know if the thing that actually propels us to live out our, our purpose is going to come from encouragement or if it's going to come from uh, that, that naysayer or that, that experience. Oh, a wound. You, you know, that, that yes. Wound. Right. So he reminds me of that too in a beautiful way. Um, yeah. I think it gives me hope and, and, and kind of embrace for all of life uh, circumstances. Thank you for sharing him with us. Thank you. Thank you, Brene. Oh. You ready for your rapid fire? Yes, but I don't want our conversation to end, but yes, yes, okay. <laughs> okay. You, Sarah, are called to be brave, but your fear is real. You can feel it right in your throat. What is the very first thing you do? Get still and ask for guidance. Last TV show you binged and loved. Richardson. 
Oh, so good. So good. Yes. Yes. It's so delicious. Oh, God, it's so good. (laughs) Favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? Ooh. I, I like things about bravery and the other side. Gladiator, Meet Joe Black. I love yeah. you know, Selma. There's, yeah. I, there are tons. Um, I like works with that kind of theme, uplifting. Yeah. That counts. You don't have to have one. I think it's so unreasonable. A concert that you'll never forget. Watching uh, Wynton Marsalis and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra performing on the road about 10 years ago. There's just so much magic in it. I am um, just, I'll just never forget. I can remember every second about every every aspect of that concert was beautiful yeah. Mm. Yeah. favorite meal Ooh, yeah something i had at this great restaurant in mexico city oh i can't even remember the name of the restaurant but i can remember how delicious all the food was and uh i mean because every every uh meal came with some kind of like sensation i never had before it was just great um oh pujol pujol that's what it was yeah, what is that? I don't even know. It's some restaurant everyone said I had to go to, had to go to. And I'm not a foodie, but I it's it's one of those restaurants it's really hard to get a reservation. I managed to get one and came with maybe eight to ten courses. It's some gastronomical oh, sort of delicacy place and you know, concoctions you never heard of and things, but it was just a high art. Every plate that mm. they brought to me. <laughs> the, the service. I always say do not underestimate the food or the art in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Here's a personal one. What's on your nightstand? I actually, I mean, truth be told, I don't have a book on the nightstand right now because I am writing about 12 to 14 hours a day. So the last thing I want to do is read when I go to bed. I want to watch yeah. Fortune when I go to bed. <laughs> so. That's awesome. So just the remote. <laughs> just the remote and a candle. <laughs> Perfect. That's perfect. Okay. A snapshot, just a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you joy. Walking by the river under a kind of tree that lets the sun like dapple the light through the grass, maybe in New York City next to my apartment there or in Cambridge, uh, walking, having just enjoyed, you know, someone's company, a good, a good spate of writing good kind of moment of teaching just being grateful to be alive be here Mm. contribute beautiful sarah lewis thank you so much it is just always such a pleasure likewise renee you're just a gift i just don't know what i did to get so lucky that we could have these conversations and hopefully continue them you're really oh yes yeah three more books i'm thinking that's at least six more podcasts (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to really work on the rapid fire like sexiest guy on bridgerton like best costume right we know the answer to that (laughs) we know (laughs) that's that's done this guy oh my gosh anyway i digress who is that who is that guy that's like that is the question all right thank you so much and i appreciate it i appreciate you and i appreciate your work my gosh we can go everywhere in this conversation didn't we yeah yeah we did and we ended up on bridgerton so can't go wrong i know i love it thank you Brene. you're welcome I 
hope this was a meaningful conversation for you. For me, every time I talk to her, something clicks and the click is followed by a pretty big change in my life and how I work and how I think about myself as a creative. I loved our conversation about letting go of counterfeit control and giving over to something larger while not giving up. Just this whole concept of aesthetic force. And I think it's because I'm such a lover of beauty, of art, of music, and how that hits with the intersection of aesthetic force and emotion is such an important thing to me. So just always incredible conversations. And we'll have more with her on Dare to Lead. I know we'll have her back again and again. You can find Sarah on Twitter at at Sarah Eliza Lewis. So S-A-R-A-H. L-E-I-Z-A, like Eliza, Lewis, and on Instagram at at Sarah Elizabeth Lewis one. Her websites are www.sarahelizabethlewis.com and www.visionandjustice.org. Church Bolton at the end. The Unlocking Us podcast, an incredible conversation with Melinda Gates, who is a philanthropist, a global advocate for women and girls, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We talk about empathy, the power of story, and about her book, The Moment of Lift. It's been called everything from a mission statement to a mandate to a manifesto. It's a call to action for gender equity. All right, y'all. Stay awkward, brave, and kind. Dare to Lead is produced by Brene Brown Education and Research Group. Music is by The Sufferers. Get new episodes as soon as they're published by following Dare to Lead on your favorite podcast app. We are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more award-winning shows at podcast.voxmedia.com. I just gotta get out most days, you see. I like walking around, it's good for me. Could you tell me where we could go eat? Take me to the good Could you tell me where we could go eat? Take me to the good.